the Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. The day after we celebrated American freedom, we'll have a conversation with an American who literally lost his freedom while imprisoned in Myanmar after a military coup. Danny Fenster is a journalist who grew up right here in Metro Detroit. He graduated from Wayne State and was managing editor at a newspaper in Myanmar when he was detained. We'll hear his remarkable story and talk about his future next on Detroit Today, right after the news from NPR. To Detroit today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. I hope everyone had a really great and restful July 4th weekend. And I hope you spent some of the weekend, at least a little of it, thinking about the freedom we were celebrating. It's not perfect. It's not unmitigated, but there are lots of things to be thankful for in America that you wouldn't necessarily find in lots of other countries around the planet. Most of us go about our days knowing that most of our actions won't put us in jeopardy of losing those liberties either. We talk and argue openly about American politics. We write and say opinions about climate change and gun control and abortion on widely read platforms like Facebook and Twitter. And we never think of being detained, for instance, for criticizing our politicians or our government. We don't think of the kinds of brutality that we see rain down on people who express themselves in many other countries. On July 4th, of course, we celebrate those freedoms. We commemorate the ideal and the ideal of this country. But for some people, some people who have lived in other places, there's a starker reminder of how cherished those freedoms are. And Danny Fenster is one of those people. He's a Huntington Woods native who was the managing editor at the media outlet Frontier Myanmar. And on his way home to Michigan, he was imprisoned, forced to sit behind a seven-by-nine-foot barred cell. He had almost nothing to keep his mind occupied. He was a prisoner for what he wrote, for what he said, for what he believed. Now, Danny has since been released, but not until he had served six months in prison for criticizing the Myanmar government. That would not be considered a crime in America, what he did. In fact, is an honored pastime here. Now, we're at a time where we're thinking a lot about our democracy and its bounds and its limits, where some people seem to be stretching those bounds and limits far beyond what makes us comfortable. And it's a little scary. But it's nothing like what Danny Fenster faced in Myanmar. We haven't been prevented from voting. We haven't been prevented from expressing our thoughts, from criticizing the government, at least not yet. Danny Fenster joins us today to talk about what happened to him, what's happened to him since he was freed, and what lies ahead in his future. I'm really pleased to welcome Danny to Detroit today. It's great to have you here. 
Hey, it's really, really great to be here. Thank you. Thank you for that introduction. Um, I'm a big, big fan of the show. Yeah, yeah. We're big fans of yours as well. <laughs> so we're, of course, really glad that you're safe and able to talk with us now. But let's start with whether you th- ever thought it was possible that you might face what you did in Myanmar. Now, this is a country that has a history of authoritarianism. And once again, there was a coup when you were there. Uh, Talk about the point at which maybe you thought you might be in jeopardy of being detained just for working Mm. as a journalist in the country. Yeah. um, You know, I guess I I suppose as soon as the coup happened, every journalist thought, you know, this, we we may be imperiled. um, And it, pretty quickly became obvious that uh, media in the press was was a prime target um, of the militaries. Uh, They seemed to really be focused on domestic media and any foreign journalists that they had detained early on. They were kind of kicking out of the country, um, short detainments and then deportation. Um, So I wasn't, I didn't think that I was personally at risk. I also when the coup took place, I was editing a magazine, so I didn't have my byline out there uh, as much as the reporters did, who I think were facing a lot more danger uh, than I was, frankly. Um, Our magazine was also primarily English language, and it had a pretty niche readership uh, that you know, the, the military, the Myanmar military is not very sophisticated. I don't think they understand uh, international politics. I don't think they've put a whole lot of effort into diplomacy or their opinion abroad. It's not something they've ever they've ever spent a lot of time thinking about. So they seemed not to be so focused also on on uh, international reporters and English language news. Um, you know, additionally, I just wasn't a very loud uh, person on social media or in the digital space. I was friends with a lot of reporters that were working for international outlets that were vocal on Twitter. Uh, and I watched each one of them go to the airport and leave. Uh, my, my partner, Juliana is a Brazilian, uh, foreign service officer. So I stuck around as long as I could. And I was staying, you know, we were staying together in an apartment. So I didn't immediately feel like I had to leave the country. I didn't want to leave the country. So I stuck around for a while and watched a lot of journalists take off without incident. Um, so I was pretty shocked when um, I showed up at the airport and they, they pulled me aside and wanted to ask some questions. Mm-hmm. So let's go to that moment. Take us there. You were detained, as you say, at the airport trying to come home to, to Michigan. Uh, mm-hmm. what, was, what, what happened? What did they say? And at what point did it become clear to you that this was more than just about questioning you. This was going to be about uh, about detaining you. Uh, you know, that entire day, I didn't think it was going to be more than a short, a short sort of thing. By the end of that day, they had sat me down in front of a judge um, in a building. This wasn't like a standard courtroom. This was like a sort of makeshift. Uh, military court that they had started setting up, which was within the prison compound. And the judge told me that I was being, um, I had been charged with this crime or this crime had been brought against me uh, and that I would have a court date two weeks from then. Um, So I went to the cell that night, just like shocked that I was going to have to stay there for two weeks. Um, I, I still couldn't wrap my mind around that it would be a two week ordeal. Uh, so I still, it took a long time to to come to grips with the fact that it would wind up being six months. Um, but but at the airport, when they started questioning me, I mean, I think it became, I knew that the previous year I had worked for a news outlet that is very, is a strong-minded dissident outlet that's always been very anti-Tatmadaw. Tatmadaw is the, the name of the Myanmar military. Um, and I knew they had raided that newsroom. I wasn't there anymore, but they had raided that newsroom shortly after the coup. They'd been seeking out all of those reporters and editors. 
So I knew I had a past affiliation with them, but, you know, there was a pretty clear record of me leaving that organization and moving to another one. Um, but the questioning at the airport, it, through that questioning, it became obvious that that's what they were looking for. Hmm. Um, and and yeah. what kind of questions were they asking you? And, and what were they, what did it seem to, to be that they were accusing you of doing? They uh, they seem to be accusing me of being affiliated with a newspaper that had been declared illegal and had their publishing license revoked. So continuing to report and to publish after they had declared you illegal, which, you know, that's just kind of a foreign concept, I think, to us in general, the fact that you could just declare a newspaper illegal and then prosecute them for publishing. Um, but that's what that's what they were doing. That's what they were accusing me of. Um, the questioning, you know, they, they're, it's, uh, they don't have a, a lot of resources or a lot of sophistication. They had, um, a very inept translator, um, trying to relay the questions to me. So the questions were just a few, like, who do you work for? How long have you worked for them? And it was those questions over and over for several hours, <laughs> um, translated poorly to me. Hmm. And, so they tell you they're going to detain you. Tell us what goes through your mind at that moment. Uh, I can imagine that fear is one of the things that that uh, occurs to you and, and uncertainty. But but what are you thinking as they as they take you off to to be in prison? Uh, you know the fear and uncertainty. I think took a little longer to set in. Um, I was so, it seemed so impossible to me that this would last a long time, that this was actually seriously happening, that I was actually just angry <clears throat> that day. And, I, you know, probably like kind of in a naive or silly way, like kind of defiant because I was angry. Um, I just couldn't, I wasn't like taking it seriously. Um, I was just, it was so obvious that I didn't work at this publication, that I worked at this other one. Um, that, you know, and I also had known of a couple other reporters, a uh, Polish reporter, a Japanese reporter that had been detained and released quickly. And I assumed that it would not be in their interest to hold on to me, to hold on to, uh, an American with a pretty clean record of journalism, a pretty clean record of migration status and my work visas and everything. Um, that it clearly committed no crime. I just didn't think they were going to hang on to me very long. Mm. And so, go through the the stages, I guess, of of this. They they imprison you. It becomes a week. It becomes mm. two weeks. It becomes longer. Yeah. Um, the first. So I didn't. I couldn't talk to anybody. I couldn't talk to my embassy or my my partner Juliana or my family. So my biggest worry was that um, I had known a couple, I had known some details about the charges and about what they thought. And I didn't know if the U.S. Embassy knew any of these details, these sort of legal procedural details. Uh, and I really wanted to know what they knew. So that first month, the big worry was like, you know, are they aware what's going on outside? Uh, and the first phone call I got with them was kind of like, piecing together what they were aware of and it was extremely reassuring to know that they were they, they kind of knew what was going on and they were doing you know whatever they could outside um but other than that that first that first month i mean it's just your mind kind of adjusting to uh being having that much sort of <laughs> distraction-free sort of boredom mm. um and you know when i first got in there there was a there was an english speaker a, a guy who uh i became good friends with who had a few books um and that occupied my mind for a couple days um and then it was just a long time of like watching your mind sort of you start to go a little stir crazy uh staring at a wall and then slowly you because you just can't dwell on boredom, your mind starts entertaining itself in other ways, and it's just like a slow process of kind of uh, normalizing, mm. normalizing the situation. Mm. 
I'm talking with uh, Danny Fenster, a native Metro Detroiter who was a journalist imprisoned in Myanmar after a military coup occurred in that country. He was detained for six months uh, and then released. We're talking about uh, that detainment. We're talking about his release and, of course, what lies ahead for Danny in the future. We're also talking about uh, the freedoms that we just celebrated yesterday uh, here in America, uh, how precious those freedoms are, how fragile they are, and how uh, in many other countries those freedoms are really hard to come by. Um, We'd love to hear from you as well during the conversation. Uh, If you have a question for Danny Fenster, of course, uh, give us a call, but also call and tell us what you make of the freedoms that we hold dear in this country. Are you worried about losing those freedoms in the context of the spectacular arguments that we're having over all kinds of things right now in this country? Uh, Also, give us a sense of uh, what you think of freedoms like freedom of speech and of the press, the freedom to criticize our politicians and our government. Uh, Those were the things that uh, allegedly got Danny Fenster in trouble in Myanmar. Uh, What do you think of our ability to do those things? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, uh, put comments there, or you can uh, put uh, comments on Twitter. Hashtag us, and we can work you into the conversation. Uh, Danny, I want to talk a little more about uh, the time you spent uh, imprisoned and and what you knew while this was was happening. I think one of the really difficult things to grasp is the the isolation um, and the isolation from information about what's going on and why. I mean, here in Metro Detroit, we were talking a lot about what was going on, what your parents were doing. Uh, Your brother came on uh, the show and talked to us about what was happening and the efforts at the State Department to to get you free. Uh, But for you, you're in that cell by yourself all day, every day. Um, did Did they interact with you at all, the people, the officials at the prison? Did they give you any information about what was going on or were you just there wondering whether this would ever end uh yeah no the the officials definitely never gave me any information i mean it was communication in general was pretty limited nobody that works at the prison um or frankly that worked for the government in any capacity that i interacted with spoke any english um and i don't think many of them knew or were paying attention to what was going on beyond their you know um, level of responsibility. Um, I didn't know the details of what was happening outside, but I was getting little hints, you know, COVID disrupted a lot of, a lot of the processes that might've otherwise been a little more normal. Um, the court, the, the procedure in court, the phone calls that I was getting with the embassy and my family. Um, but when those phone calls were able to take place, they told me everything they were doing. Um, they were writing me letters every uh, couple weeks. I would get some letters. And in the letters, um, Juliana and, you know, my brother, they had told me what they were doing. Somebody told me that um, you 2 had tweeted about me. And um, Tom Morello, one of my favorite guitar players, <laughs> had tweeted about it. So I had these, like, little indications that there was some really major, like, media coverage and some major there's a major push going on but uh i didn't i it was cool to hear but i just didn't think i didn't have a lot of confidence that that mattered as i said previously about that that regime um that's not always they don't respond to those sorts of pressures and incentives from the international community Mm. and i was mostly worried that um you know on february 1st overnight um, there was a new, a new group in charge, and uh, the U.S. government had spent a decade 
forming some kind of diplomatic relationship with this quasi-civilian government that just disappeared overnight. And uh, I was just convinced that they had no relationship and no access to the current government um, or the current military rulers um, and that that was just not going to, these these other efforts might not work. Mm-hmm. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation with uh, Danny Fenster about uh, his imprisonment in Myanmar, his release, and what he will be up to in the future. We also want to hear from you on the phones and on social media, 313-577-1019. Call and tell us about what you think about the freedoms that we enjoy in this country and whether you think they are indeed quite fragile. They certainly are still somewhat rare on the planet. Uh, Also, if you have questions for Danny about uh, the time he spent in Myanmar or his career, great time to join the conversation. 313-577-1019 is the number. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and Twitter and put comments there. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Bringing you news that matters. Stories that impact your life. Music from the Motor City and around the world. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. As always, thanks for joining in. We've got a really special guest today. Danny Fenster, a journalist who was imprisoned in Myanmar after a military coup occurred in that country. Uh, he was detained for six months and then released. We're talking about that detainment, the time he spent in prison there. Also talking about his release and uh, what he will be up to in the future. I want to hear from you as well during the conversation. Give us a call. Tell us uh, about uh, the freedoms that we enjoy in this country Uh, how much you worry about uh, their security, how strong they are. Uh, Yesterday was the 4th of July when we annually celebrate the idea of freedom and the ideals of freedom in this country. Uh, Does that remind you of some of the threats to those freedoms uh, that exist? As always, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter, Put comments there, and we'll work into the conversation. Uh, Danny, I want to talk about what led you to this point. Uh, Like me, you're a journalist, um, but you ended up being a journalist in Myanmar. Um, What what led you there, and what was the work that you were doing there? Uh, What what did it mean to you to be uh, a journalist trying to bring information to people there and here? Yeah, ah, that's a that's a good question. The way the way you phrased it, particularly, because um, my thinking about that changed a little bit over time. And then in prison, I think I was actually reflecting on that quite a bit. Um, the number of reasons that I wound up there um, more than a decade ago, I think uh, my brother <clears throat> Brian and I we used to volunteer in Chicago, where I did my undergrad and studied journalism. We used to volunteer with a refugee resettlement group um, that was helping families that had just arrived in the United States and in Chicago settle and adjust to life there. And uh, some of the families we worked with were from Southeast Asia, and one family in particular was from Myanmar. So I'd been familiar with the country and some of the issues there. Um, I also... That's uh, obsessed with George Orwell, uh, his nonfiction, <laughs> and he's he's written really incredible essays about his time in Myanmar, in Burma, as it was then known. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's sort of just a number of reasons, <clears throat> a number of reasons that that country in particular had been on my radar. And at a certain point in time, I just wanted to move abroad and try to do journalism in another country. Um, you know, the year prior... I had moved, Trump had just been elected, and it was such such a shock, I think. I'd watched the election for Detroit, and it seemed so surprising. 
I had decided to try to move to a location that might help me understand, meet people I hadn't met and understand a little bit more my own country. So I wound up in southern Louisiana in a small rural town at a newspaper there. Um, and uh, it was a fascinating experience, but I also kind of knew I didn't want to stay there forever. So after about a year, um, I think it was sort of that same instinct to try to understand something I knew a little bit about but didn't completely understand that had led me to kind of pick up and go to Myanmar. There are certain issues that they were dealing with, I think, press freedom, misinformation. Um, they have a fascinating, troubling legacy of race and ethnicity. And uh, because it's such a different context in the United States, I thought I might learn something by by moving there and seeing how, how that works in the society. So it was a confluence of all those things. I didn't know what that would look like in terms of me being a journalist. Um, I think there's, you know, a lot of great um, foreign correspondence, but there's always a really strange, somewhat, I've found uncomfortable question about going and telling other people's stories. You know, um, the questions about, is it my story to tell, et cetera. Uh, when I moved into more editorial roles, which is not, you know, I'd always been a writer and a reporter, um, becoming an editor there, I kind of, with a team of local reporters, people, Burmese, Myanmar citizens who had grown up there, who knew the country and the context and were passionate about telling the story of their country to the international community, um, helping to shape those stories for narrative, for sort of standards of journalism and um, and then just the con being a conduit to an English language audience um, and the international community, I started finding a lot of meaning, um, especially when I was reflecting on what I was doing and why I was there once I was in the prison and had time to do nothing but reflect. Uh, I started kind of thinking about it in that term, and um, I think it's a really important uh, role and I found a lot of meaning in it. Um, we had a caller um, who wanted to highlight some of the atrocities that are going on uh, in Myanmar, and he's getting this information from Human Rights Watch. He says that there's mm -hmm. really shocking footage uh, of brutal killings, allegedly, um, in a region where a United Nations investigator has uh, documented some war crimes by the Myanmar mm -hmm. military. I, I guess this is very harrowing footage. I, I wonder if when you were there, the, the awareness of, of that heightened the anxiety about your your detainment and about your work before the detainment. I mean, this is a place where it is not uncommon for... Uh, you know, people to be killed by the mm -hmm. government. Um, what, what influence did that have on the journalism you were doing and then the time that you spent uh, in prison? Before I was an editor, um, any reporting that I had done that sort of that, there was some reporting I had done about the military controls huge swaths of the economy. Um, and any time that a foreign company partners with them, it's obviously controversial from a human rights perspective um, in, in the international community. Um, and that's why I'd done reporting on foreign companies that had partnered with the military, and I knew that that wasn't, they weren't particularly happy about that. But um, there was this, the entire time I was there, it was this period of the military had sort of opened up, had agreed to start opening up some media censorship laws, had started sharing power. It was the first time I'd really been afraid to sort of hit publish on a story, um, but I wasn't that afraid. It seemed like a, a transition towards democracy that was actually working and taking place. Mm. Um, but yeah, I mean, we're all, this is one of the world's biggest pariahs, the, the military there. I mean, we're all aware of the atrocities that they've committed against their own people for for half a century. Um, I, I, I still, maybe this is naive, but I felt a little bit protected from that because I was not uh, 
Myanmar citizen. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was a I was a foreigner. Um, whatever naivety naivety I had about being an American, like it quickly became apparent that the U.S. government didn't have a lot of diplomatic power. But I still felt like I was getting some sort of uh, protection just because just because of that my status as an American. Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, three one three five seven seven. 1019 is the number here on the phones. Let's go to Tim in Detroit. Tim, welcome to the show. Hi, Steve. Uh, you were talking earlier about uh, the possibility in the future of losing freedoms. I think we've already lost a lot of our freedoms. Mm-hmm. The uh, Bush-Cheney administration, they stripped out all kinds of constitutional uh, things and made laws that are just blatantly anti-constitutional. That's, some of them still stand. The... Uh, uh, the fact that Roe versus Wade passed is a clear indication that we've lost. Uh, the Supreme Court, the highest court in the land, that Tocqueville said was the last bastion of justice and democracy. Mm-hmm. And here we've got these ideologues dictating to us instead of the people dictating to them. Yeah, uh, Tim, I really appreciate your calling and, and sharing that perspective. I think there's a lot of people who are feeling that way right now. Danny, I I really wonder how those kinds of things, and obviously not asking you to take a side in any of these <laughs> these political arguments that are going on, but but the the notion that um, that the freedoms that are supposed to attend citizenship and residency in this country are somehow under threat, they must seem somewhat different to you ha- after having been in a country where. Uh, those freedoms are far more under threat and and where basic freedoms like, uh, you know, the, the ability to criticize the government or, or, or just publish anything uh, mm. is 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 something that could land you in in prison. I, I'm always curious for people who have had experiences in other countries, how these arguments and these strains on our democracy look and feel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Um you know, there's a caution I would like to exercise in not lowering my bar and lowering our bar mm. of, of the standard of what we say is, you know, freedoms we want to appreciate and protect and all that. Um, I do feel like I, you know, have to say, listen, it could get a lot worse. We have freedoms. Uh, Tim, Tim just called and said that on the air, and he's not going to face any consequences for it. Um, you know, we can, when, when Roe was overturned, people were out in the streets immediately, um, and they weren't being locked up for being out on the street. That's a very low bar. I don't want to say like, let's just be grateful for that. Uh, you know, when I got out, I read about, um, the previous president's, uh, brief, briefly tenured national security advisor advocating for a a Myanmar style coup in this country, and then watching uh, the January 6th committee hearings, which I think have been a pretty, hopefully taken as a pretty interesting civics lesson for the country. Um, it, it, you see how extreme it is. We, we have, these are some major changes in this country, and it's pretty terrifying. Uh, I don't know. There's a balance between those two things. You don't want to, you need to be aware of how, how dangerous the situation in the United States is getting. Um, and you also have to be somewhat appreciative of, you know, the vast freedoms that I think we still have. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, what are, what are the things that, um, that you think we ought to be doing differently about how we think about places like Myanmar in this country? Uh, it, it is a place that I don't think most, Americans ever have cause to think about, but but it is a place that uh, that there are Americans, and it's a place where there is this tremendous difficulty respecting human rights, at, at least in a consistent manner. Um, uh, is there is there something that occurred to you, maybe while you were imprisoned, about the way in which we interact with these countries uh, as as uh, as as citizens or as uh, as a government um, mm-hmm. that would make things better for people who who live there. 
Yeah, that's a very, very deep, complicated set of <laughs> questions. Um, I mean, there, there's this... <clears throat> I have a sort of gut emotional sort of uh, intuition that I, I want to, I don't know, do good in the world and make the world a better place. Mm -hmm. um, there's a question about what responsibility, if any, any particular government or any particular superpower um, has for for acting in the world um, in whichever way. They're difficult questions. These are some of the issues that I have a journalism fellowship coming up this this coming year, and these are some of the questions I would like to be thinking about with some of the uh, people who have spent their lives thinking about these things and know a lot more than I do. Um, but I, it's a fascinating, interesting question. The United States has been funding um, independent media around the world for a long time. That it once upon a time was done covertly, and it was a Cold War strategy. For several decades, it's been done completely in the open, and it's um, about promoting human rights and democracy. And um, I understand that that's a controversial thing. My instinct is to say that we should be supporting independent media around the world. But uh, it also engenders a lot of suspicion and conspiracy thinking. Uh, there's a <laughs> very, a uh, thankfully very small sort of conspiracy theory on the Internet that I'm a, a U.S. State Department agent sent for regime change in Myanmar. Hmm. And I think that's because people don't understand what all the programs that the State Department does and how we engage in the world um, and just the fact that these things were once done covertly, like that there's not a robust enough conversation in this country about how we act and engage with the world. That's one starting point, I think, is to is for Americans to know more about what our government is doing in the world and to have conversations about how we should be doing it. Yeah. Okay, we're going to take another quick break, and when we come back, we're going to continue this really wonderful conversation with Danny Fenster. We're going to talk about his release from imprisonment in Myanmar and what he is going to be up to next. I want to continue to hear from you on the phones and on social media. 313-577-1019 is the number. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter, put comments there, and uh, we'll work you into the show. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. This is Detroit Today on I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. We've got Danny Fenster with us today. He is a native Metro Detroiter who was a journalist working in Myanmar when a military coup took place, and he was detained for six months uh, for allegedly for things that uh, his publication had uh, had written about uh, about the government there. We're talking about that detainment. We're talking about his release and, of course, what he is uh, going to be doing in the future. want to hear from you on the phones as well. 313-577-1019 is the number. You can also go to social media and uh, put comments there. So, so uh, Danny, I want to start this part of the show talking about the day that you learned that you would be released, what happened, and how that felt, of course. <laughs> um, the day that I learned, I mean, I learned I would be released as I was being released. Uh, <laughs> there, was, there was a long day that started with, uh, they would usually unlock the, the cell at about 7 a.m. That day, they came to my cell at 6 a.m. Um, and said, pack a bag. <clears throat> but I, I didn't really know exactly what the where we were going. Um, it seemed like a very promising thing, but there was just a lot of confusion, and um, I had stopped like taking anything as good signs or bad signs, and just kind of trying to just watch each event as it unfolded without trying to read into it or make any judgments. So I was just kind of passively watching what was going on. They they turned me over to. Uh, some other people outside of the prison who kind of trundled me into a SUV 
and uh, started driving. The Yangon International Airport is at the north end of the city, uh, and we were driving towards it, and so I was getting very, very hopeful. And then we just went right past it and just kept driving and uh, drove for several hours. I So I didn't know what was going on. At that point, I kind of convinced myself that uh, I wasn't going home that day. I was being transferred to a different prison. And so I kind of thought, <clears throat> well, maybe things will be better over there and maybe things will be worse over there. We'll see when we get there. Um, but uh, they drove me to the Capitol and took me to a police station there. And it was another several hours of waiting until finally they said, uh, you've been found guilty. We're going to give you a pardon and we're going to take you to the airport. Now, I still don't understand why they took me to the airport in the capital rather than in Yangon, the city I was imprisoned in. But um, that's basically how that how that unfolded. Um, I, I said I've said this to a previous interviewer, but yeah, it's kind of kind of bittersweet to know that I'll never have a day as good as that again. Um, I, when I was released, I wasn't just, I would have been happy no matter how I was released. Hmm. They could have turned me on to a Spirit Airline flight for 15 hours and I'd have been fine. But there was a private jet and then uh, I was transferred in Qatar to a uh, first class, uh, business class, whatever flight, commercial flight. I mean, it was just like the, the best way that a release could possibly unfold. <laughs> um, and, you know, I was walked onto the plane. They had they had a beer for me. They had a phone. <laughs> so I could call Juliana. I could call my brother. Uh, I mean, it was just a great, a great day. Uh, I was just kind of high on that day for quite a while. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I want to go back to the phones here. Melissa in Metro Detroit. Melissa, welcome to the show. Uh, hi, Stephen, and uh, hello to your guest. Um, I'm really glad you're home. Uh, so, and I have a question for you. Uh, during your imprisonment, did you have times of extreme fear? And if so, how did you manage that? And then if you didn't have times of extreme fear, why didn't you? Hmm. Hmm. Great question. <sighs> times of extreme fear. It felt more like times of extreme anxiety and depression. Um, w the longer it dragged on, the less I thought, the less hopeful I was that it was going to get resolved. Um, but then you kind of, you kind of exhaust yourself on that and then it passes. And then you remember that, um, before you were anxious, you were jogging in a circle <laughs> to kill the time, or you were reading a book or you were staring at the ants on the wall and observing their patterns of movement or whatever. And when you're thinking about one of these other things that the mind obvious, that just inevitably gets distracted with, you're not anxious. Um, so you just go back and forth between those things, focusing on one thing that isn't your desperation. And then sometimes you get sucked back into that. Mm. Mm. Uh, great question, Melissa, and uh, thanks for the call. Um, so, Danny, you get home, and of course, uh, lots of people want to talk to you. They want to hear about what, what happened. Of course, lots of people are, I'm sure, very happy to see you and, and happy to know that you're free. But I'm very curious about what goes through your mind in terms of what's next when the dust kinds of kind of settles and you go back to the idea of normal, quote-unquote, life here. Mm. What were the things that, that occurred to you that were important about your work and about your life? Um, well, you know, one thing that I thought a lot about was um, all sorts of projects and habits and things that you've always wanted to do but put off because it's hard to start or because you think there'll be time later. Um, there was a lot of time where I just wasn't sure I'd get out while I was still <laughs> young and healthy and able to, you know, work productively. Uh, and I thought about the things, all the little passion projects and creative projects that I had put off. So I think one thing was just kind of feeling committed to doing that sort of thing, you know, not just journalism, but creative writing in general. Um, 
things that don't that aren't necessarily tied to your next paycheck. Um, just motivating myself to do those things, which you know was re- I was really good at when I immediately got out, and then life starts to normalize, and you find excuses again. Mm. So that's sort of a constant a constant thing. Um, but other than that, you know, I wasn't it wasn't like. I mean, I wanted, when people were asking me questions, it felt like I had been given an amazing opportunity to continually remind people that this, there's a country where everybody's future has just been, has just vanished overnight. And, uh, this is an ongoing thing. Um, and then, you know, shortly after that, uh, Russia invaded Ukraine and it seemed like everybody's focus shift understandably uh similar devastation um but you know i don't know it's just it's it's hard to think about how we set these agendas and prioritize suffering when there's just so much so much tragedy happening yeah yeah so your next step at least your immediate next step is a fellowship at harvard Mm -hmm. the neiman Fellowship, uh, which for those of us who are journalists, we're all pretty familiar with uh, that. It's, it is, I think, uh, arguably the most prestigious journalism fellowship. It's also run by a woman named Anne Marie Lipinski, who happens to be a, a good friend of mine. But tell me about uh, the decision to take that time, and and what you what you hope to accomplish while you're there. Yeah, the decision to do a journalism fellowship was not difficult. I mean, if I could, uh, I could be paid to just take classes for the rest of my life. I'd probably right. be pretty happy with that. I've kind of always, you know, been a pretty enthusiastic student. Um, the decision to do the Neiman instead of the Knight Wallace at the University of Michigan, which is an equally incredible program, mm-hmm. that was very difficult. Um, I, I felt. When I got home, I could I just I felt so grateful for the Metro Detroit community I'd grown up in and how supportive everyone was, and I really did want to stick around in Ann Arbor. And the Night Wallace program is an incredible, incredible program, so I did feel torn about that. Um, but because you know, as we spoke about earlier, questions about U.S. involvement in the world. Um, there are certain specific academics that are at the Kennedy School that I think I would probably be angry at myself for passing up an opportunity to study with. Um, there are also some some essayists that teach some nonfiction writing classes there that I really would like to study with. Um, so that's sort of that's sort of how, how I came to that decision. But yeah, these these issues about how the United States should engage in the world. Um, and how it can support journalists that are reporting on uh, regimes they've had to flee from are kind of like the primary clusters of questions and issues that I'm going to be focusing on. Yeah, yeah. Um, And personally, um, uh, of course, living abroad changes anybody, but living abroad as a journalist, I think, changes people in a different way. But then... Living abroad as a journalist who gets detained for six months, uh, I mean, I can't imagine um, the, the well, the transformation, I suppose. Um, and so uh, in, in, your, in your life, in your personal life, I guess, what things are fundamentally different? What things are more real now, I guess, than they were before? You know, you kind of, you think about the possibility of something like this happening when you decide you want to move to Myanmar to be a journalist. Mm -hmm. It's not outside of the realm of possibilities. So I think having at least entertained the thought uh, hypothetically is a little bit of a helpful preparation. Um, it's not like my foundational, any foundational truths about life um, or the world have changed. Uh, I still think it's extremely important for Americans to get out into the world, to learn about other places and people, um, to learn about what is universal and what is specific to each place and culture. Uh, it's becoming 
more and more dangerous for Americans to be in the world, which is not something I was aware of before. But now I'm realizing, you know, there's two overlapping issues. It's becoming more dangerous to be a journalist in the world, um, but it's also separately becoming more dangerous to be an American. I mean, I think about Brittany Griner every day and the 50 or so Americans that are being held abroad mm -hmm. for various reasons that aren't necessarily journalists. Um, I still think it's extremely important for Americans to, to get out into the world and engage and learn. Um, so I don't, it's not, it's not that any, anything fundamentally has changed my views and my outlook, but, uh, I don't know, maybe I've learned a little something about resilience. I'm a little more resilient than I ever thought I was, I suppose. So maybe I'm a little more confident, but I don't know. <laughs> mm. Okay. Uh, Danny Fenster, it is, of course, great that you are back home and uh, not in prison, but uh, I'm especially grateful that uh, you could be with us here on Detroit today. Uh, thanks so much for joining the show. Thank you. Thank you. I've, for years, been a huge fan of yours, a huge fan of WDET, so it's quite an honor yeah no we really appreciate that and and again we're just uh, overjoyed that uh, this all worked out in yeah. the best possible way yeah thank you okay that is gonna do it for us today come back tomorrow when we were gonna continue talking about the implications of roe v wade being overturned by the supreme court this is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow. <laughs>